Good morning. This is Real Estate for Breakfast podcast. I'm your host, Philip Coover. I'm a partner in Ice Miller's Real Estate Practice Group. And today we have we have another great guest. We have Alyssa Adler of Colliers, Senior Vice President. Alyssa, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for having me, Philip. I, uh, I love podcasts and I usually listen to true crime, but given what's going on in the office market, I feel like this is true crime. This is true crime. It's a little bit of a mystery. Uh, there's definitely some some murders happening out there. Uh, but, you know, I, thanks for coming on the show. We met at ICSC a few weeks ago. We've been introduced by Sarah Austin right before that. little shout out to Sarah. Our conversation uh, was one of the more memorable ones I had at ICSC. And just because of the substance of it and kind of talking to you, getting your your expert opinion on the office market was really insightful to me. Um, so, well, why don't we start because we got to talk about office, uh, but tell me about you and your career in Collier's and kind of where you are today. Sure. Well, I'll start with big picture. So Collier's is a global real estate services firm. We're in 66 countries. Um, we have an office both in the downtown Chicago area and the Rosemont. I work out of both because I cover the CBD and the suburbs, as well as partnering with some of our Midwestern markets on office investment sales. Our company covers all the normal food groups, uh, office, industrial, retail, multifamily. We manage 55 million square feet. Um, We don't manage any multifamily, but all the other product types we do cover. And uh, yeah, we're, uh, we're, we're as full service as I think you could get. And yeah, my, I, think you're... I was going to say, I, I joined Collier's in uh, October of 19, right before uh, the whole world shut down. Yeah, interesting time to, to start with a company. And what were you doing before then? Because I've read your bio and I saw you founded a few companies. I did. I started my career more on the institutional side. I worked for Equity Office, Sam Zell, um, MetLife, Duke Realty. Uh, and then I did start my own company in 2005, doing uh, advisory services for clients who didn't necessarily have an office here in the Chicago market, mostly, you know, some in-state, some out-of-state that wanted to do acquisitions here in the Chicago area. And then I merged that company in with a slightly bigger company called Podolsky Circle, where I was the managing principal for many years. And then in 2019, we we merged our company in with Collier's and decided that it was better to, to join up with a much larger firm. And that's kind of what the market was looking for at that point in time. Sure. And so what is your role currently with Collier's? What do you do on a day-to-day basis? So I sell office buildings. Uh, at Collier's, we all kind of pick our lane, and my uh, career has really mostly been in the office world. I love office, and so you know when we joined, that was really the focus. My partner John Hampshire and I uh, came over to to be the office capital markets team. Awesome! And so obviously, the past three years have been a very interesting time in office, starting with March of twenty twenty with the shutdown. Um, and everybody working from home. Tell us a little bit about how the past three years have gone for you. So they've been great. Collier's has 
opened a lot of doors in terms of getting to know people nationally that own office here and have different needs. Um, you know, some large institutional owners that look at their real estate much differently than private clients or equity funds. So it's been good to kind of get a broader perspective of the entire um, office ownership groups. And I, in the last few years, we've, we've done a number of deals. We are actually probably our best, our best year was right um, after we joined in 2020. And then it sort of slowed down a little bit. And now it's back, you know, guns blazing because of the distress in the market. And people are always surprised when I say how busy I am. But distress creates opportunity. And that's what's happening right now. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about the distress, because I think I've been reading a lot about it and I'm in real estate, but not not everyone I think knows. I mean, I think some people would have assumed 2020 was the worst time period for office, but it takes a long time for the change in work culture, I'm sure, to work through uh, the system. So, So tell us about the distress that you're seeing. So the distress is really, uh, it's not just in Chicago, it's its nationwide. It's mostly in the bigger markets, Chicago, New York, LA, San Francisco. Now Boston is sort of coming up as well in terms of um, large MSAs that are seeing a lot of issues. Uh, typically in those cities, they either have older product we we actually do research on you know the age of inventory of office buildings across some of those markets and it's always interesting to me to see that chart because a lot of those buildings are just functionally obsolete and are are creating a, a real challenge because there's such a flight to quality to class a buildings and the average uh, across you know these large MSAs is 35 of the 35% of the inventory is over 50 years old. So those are buildings that are going to be really challenging to add amenities and do all the things that, you know, people want. They don't have the window line. They don't have the air quality. They don't have all the things that the modern buildings have. So that's, that's a big challenge. A lot of the big cities that have distress are challenged by either crime that's certainly something that we're dealing with here in Chicago. In our case, it's also uh, transportation for a long time. You know, we're very dependent because a lot of our workforce works in the suburbs and we were very dependent on getting that workforce into the CBD and people were reluctant to go on the train systems. Um, So that's been a challenge, at least here in Chicago. And then, you know, we also have an additional challenge here that adds to stress to our market, which is the tax assessment assessments uh, in Cook County. So what we're finding is that the loans, a lot of the loans that happened were back right after the great financial crisis. So 2013, 2014, as we started to come out of the, the great financial crisis, CMBS really stepped up to do the majority of those loans. And those were typically 10-year loans. Well, now we're in 2023, 2024, 10 years later, you just have what they're calling a wall of maturity. 
coming up. So this year you have 35 billion in CMBS loans maturing. You have almost the same amount um, next year. And about 20% of that is, is office, which is the most challenged of, of all the markets. So you just have a lot of different issues compounding on top of each other to create this problem. And then you had the interest rates go up. Yeah. And at the same time that office is in less demand, probably than it has historically been for a long time from a lot of tenants perspective with all of the work from home and the change in the work work model. So I pay a lot of attention to castle systems. They track key card swipes and yeah. mostly the downtowns and they track all the major markets. And right now the national average um, is just under 50% usage. That's not occupancy. It's, it's tenant usage. Chicago is actually above the average, which is, a win for us. It's exciting. <laughs> we need a win. <laughs> um, but, you know, 50% is still 50%. And what people don't understand with that, I think, is all the ramifications that come from that low occupancy number. Because right now, retail in the CBD is really suffering as well, because you kind of have these three day work weeks. Well, as a restaurant owner, a shop owner, you can't survive on people just coming in, you know, Tuesday through Thursday and keep your staff and make things work. And then on the flip side, people say, well, I only want to come to the office if you're giving me all these amenities in my building and you and, all, and I, I can eat out and I can shop and I can do all these things when I'm at the office. And so there's the disconnect right now of what's happening and what, you know, tenants and employees want and what's really happening. And then the other ramification of what's happening today, too, is that as as vacancy goes up, we're the highest vacancy uh, right now in Chicago that we've ever seen at over 21%, almost 22%. You're finding that the buildings are just becoming so devalued that it's also going to impact your tax base. Yeah, that's what worries me, too, is I was telling... A few folks after we talked uh, at ICSC just about this wall of maturity uh, that was coming due. I really like that phrase. It sounds like it sounds like something positive, but uh, it's probably it's not. It's, it's um, not. <laughs> but in just like how's that going to impact? You know, I think some people their initial reaction is, "All right, well, I'm not investing in office, and you know, I'm sure it'll, it might hit the banks." Like. Does this matter to the real person? Is like, I think it will because we get so much revenue from the real estate taxes that are on these massive office buildings. And like, I live in the outskirts of Cook County. I'm like, well, once they're all reassessed and revalued, uh, what they're currently worth, we're just not going to get the tax revenue from those buildings. And then it's got to be that shortfall's got to be made up somewhere. So I think, you know, that. That's certainly something that concerns me as I try to think through this. I, I think that should be on everyone's radar right now, uh, more than it probably has been. I think that's a real issue that we're going to face, and and the homeowners are going to f- take the brunt of some of that, and and s- s- 
the other issue that, you know, office buildings will have is people that have gross up clauses, you know, you know, typically real estate taxes aren't grossed up today, but maybe that becomes something in the future that, that people start to look at because they have to pass these costs to the few tenants that are in their buildings. And maybe, you know, that becomes a, uh, a non, yeah. you know, <laughs> an so expense that we have to look at differently. So you're saying gross up costs, you mean, so typically a tenant would have to pay its proportionate share of whatever costs are in the building. So let's say there's 10 tenants and you'd have 10% of the real estate taxes, you would pay that. But there are some phrases and leases that have gross up costs, meaning if the building is only 50% occupied, you're paying whatever portion of the occupancy so that the landlord is 100% covered. So you're just like... If it was only 50% covered, you'd be paying 20% instead of your 10%. Is that what you're you're referring to? Well, what I'm referring to is in, in certain leases, you'll see um, if the building is 50% lease, the landlord is allowed to charge the tenant and gross up to, say, 95% occupancy or 100% occupancy as though that building was fully leased. And it's not every expense category. It's usually things like utilities, cleaning, you know, certain variable expenses. Taxes historically have not been in that category. But at some point, you know, if landlords are burdened with these enormous taxes, that's going to get passed down to the tenants in some way, shape or form. They're not, you know, otherwise their bottom line is going to go down so much that they'll never make, you know, the they'll never make their debt service payments. They'll never, you know, recover from that. So I, I don't know. I don't know that that's something that will for sure happen, but I'm just thinking 10 steps ahead that, you know, yeah. if this all comes to fruition, things are going to have to change. So what are the values of the properties worth on a percentage basis? Like what are you seeing out there um, in terms of when you're talking to clients about selling or their values is they're looking at the their portion of the wall of maturity. Like, how are you valuing these these buildings? So it's very challenging today because there's no certainty of how fast buildings will lease up. So we take a pretty conservative approach when we're underwriting. We think it's going to take probably three to four years to stabilize buildings. We are underwriting to today's interest rates that are, you know, if you can even get financing, which is a big if on office today, you know, you're looking at six and a half percent interest rates, if, if not more. And that's not bridge. Bridge is even higher. And that's a whole other issue we could talk about is the lack of, of financing available. But what we're seeing generally is, uh, especially in the CBD, you know, the, the better buildings are probably going to trade, you know, somewhere in a 30% discount to where they were before. But some of the buildings that are older, you know, just non-functional buildings could be as much as 50 to 70% discount to where they traded before. It's an enormous hit. Wow. New York, I've heard, is on average about 50%. That's a remarkable loss in value. And so, um, 
you know, one thing is you mentioned CMBS, uh, commercial mortgage-backed securities. So a lot of this debt was, uh, was not a recourse, right? So we're starting to see some of these buildings, like I think the Board of Trade, the owners just handed it back to the lender rather than fight a foreclosure. So you may or may not see as many foreclosures we used to see because it'll just be happening behind the scenes. If people fight the foreclosures, sometimes they're bad boy carve-outs or they might be become responsible for the debt. They don't want to do that. So they might just hand the keys back to the banks. But I'd imagine handing the keys back to the banks, um, you know, one, they don't have the appetite to reinvest like a private company that's trying to make value. And two, I'd imagine that would put more stress on some of these lenders when at a time when there's already a lot of stress on some of these lenders. Yeah, I talked to a lot of special servicers um, that handle these CMBS loans and they're completely, you know, just drinking from a fire hose right now in terms of what's coming back to them. Some loans go into servicing because of maturity default, they can't refinance. Some large institutional owners are now putting themselves into special servicing because they basically want to initiate conversations with the lender to try to do some type of loan mod or extension. Most of these servicers are looking for a big equity commitment in order to work with these borrowers. They're not just doing the you know blend and extend that people were doing a few years ago. And even through COVID, a lot of those kind of got extended out and, and that's adding to this wall of maturity as well. So I think you're going to see a mix because depending on which servicers you're talking about, some are more willing than others to try to work with borrowers. Um, some borrowers are more open to just handing the keys back. Some really want to try to keep their properties and are, are fighting those foreclosure suits. But at the end of the day, if they can't either get a loan modification, come up with the equity to satisfy the lender to give them an extension, you know, another lender to finance, there, there's going to be a lot of REO. Yeah. Yeah. That's inevitable. Um, it's tough to get financing on a lot of things right now. Um, even good quality multifamily retail, like we're seeing lenders that are being extremely, uh, you know, thorough, let's say on their underwriting and making sure borrowers have liquidity and, you know, just a lot of different funky things happening with lenders like that just seem to be pulling back or it makes you feel like maybe there's something going on at the bank where they're worried about their own liquidity. This It's just like a difficult environment. But I imagine with office, it's even even more stressful or the strained the process of trying to get financing. Um, can you talk a little bit about just like how is the suburban market doing as opposed to central business, you mentioned CBD, central business district, like how's, how's Chicago versus DuPage, Lake? Um, you said you go all the way up to your other office in the, I think it was the Northwest Burbs. Like what, what are the differences there? So the suburban office is also having, um, a, I call it the 
great basis reset. It's uh, it, all of these properties are challenged. We've sold about 1.2 million square feet of vacant headquarter, former headquarter buildings. And these buildings have traded anywhere from just under $10 a foot to mid $20 a foot. And these are buildings that are 100,000, 200, 300,000 square feet or bigger, you know, would probably cost $400 a foot to rebuild. Uh, They're trading at significant discounts. Occupied buildings are trading slightly higher than those numbers. But again, it, it comes down to the financing. We have buyers. We have buyers that see a future in these suburban buildings and think that they can do spec suites and they can put some money in. But it's becoming a problem now where they have to pay all cash. And if you have to pay all cash, you're going to pay less money for the building. And you don't have what's considered good news money for leasing, for TI commission, and all those things that typically your lender would be helping you with. So on some of these buildings, especially in Cook County, going back to Cook County, it's a, it's a, there's a big carry cost. if You don't have any income coming in that building. So some of these buildings are also going to get torn down. You know, some might get converted, but that's always the first thing everybody asks us is, can my building, you know, be converted to something else? And normally the answer is no, unfortunately. That is something a lot of people, you know, want to hang their hats on. They say, can I tear this building down for industrial or convert it to multifamily or hotel? There are there are a handful that work for that, but um, there's a lot of physical challenges with buildings. They don't all, all work for different product type. And you also have the challenge of municipalities. Not, even if you think your building works great as multifamily, it doesn't mean the municipality agrees with you and wants that. Yeah. Yeah, and I'll add another layer of complexity. I mean, you, I hear people trying to reconvert uh, like LaSalle Street into multifamily. Um, but I've also heard just the buildings just don't work very well. In the city, there's huge floor plates. Like it's really hard to create multifamily with just the way that office buildings are laid out. They're just, they're just not set up to be apartments. Ideally, you know, you don't want to have a, a floor plate much larger than 15,000 square feet because you need to get light into those apartments if you're going to convert them. So you, you it doesn't work with large floor plates. And the other thing that with these conversions, people kind of forget about that if the building has tenants, you have to de-lease the building. There's a cost to that. And you have to, you know, there's a, and there's a time frame that that is going to happen. It's not overnight. So, um, you know, that's been a challenge with some of the buildings that for us, it would normally work as teardowns for industrial because the land site is perfectly located and, and is large enough, but the industrial developers don't want to buy office buildings and sit on them and deal with office tenants. They want vacant land, basically. So there's a lot of challenges that go into all these properties and looking at them and how to value them and what they ultimately will be. It's it's much more complex than just, you know, what somebody wants. Yeah, I would like to think that, I mean, at least in the suburbs, if you were going to tear a building down, I'm not an engineer, 
but I imagine it was extremely difficult to tear down a building in the middle of the central business district. Like, I don't know. Yeah, those probably aren't getting torn down. (laughs) Those are getting converted from the inside out. Yeah. So I I like going to the office, personally. I enjoy it. Uh, We have nice office spaces. I enjoy it. But do I make it five days a week? I do not. Because it's just, the commuting is just an effort, especially I had two little kids. It's hard to... Seems like all of these end of the year activities happen to fall at like three o'clock on a Thursday. Um, so, you know, getting downtown's a challenge. Are more people? But I would. I like to think if, if my office was ten minutes away, I'd just drive over more often. Like, how is the occupancy? The the castle key stripes. Are, are more people going to the suburban office, or is is it just not work out that way? So unfortunately, they don't track suburban. They just track CBD. Um, but I would tell you from our tours of buildings that I feel like it's probably similar to slightly better than CBD. But it's not five days a week at this point. We Most companies are not there. I'm hoping that eventually people get back to that. I think it's a healthier way to do business. I think there's a lot of good reasons to be in the office, but I I understand people's need and want for flexibility and to be able to, you know, take a few hours out of the day to run to a doctor's office or an appointment or whatever and, and make up that time, you know, later another day. I mean, I, I think that makes sense. But I don't know how long it's going to take us to kind of get to this happy medium between what employees and employers want and, you know, and how to make everyone happy. Yeah, I would like to think that even though the demand for office product is down right now, if you look at it far enough out on horizon, as there's more companies, more human beings in the world, that these office buildings will fill back up and maybe... You know, it changes. We get more. You're seeing more and more companies. You read the headlines; they're requiring four or five days a week to come back in. Do you think that, you know, in a couple of years, maybe the demand swings back, back upside? We just happen to be in a, in a real low point. I I do. I personally, I do believe that. I think that as people, like we naturally want to be around other people, and I think there's a lot of a lot of things are missed from from the younger generation in terms of training and just having somebody sit next to you in the office and hear your phone call or hear how you respond to a client and just have these impromptu conversations. I mean, I, I go in five days a week. I love being in the office. I get a lot out of being in the office and having those type of conversations and being with other people. And I do think the pendulum just swung really far. and and it will come back. It it always does. It always kind of finds its norm again. It's just, we just went so far to that side that it's just going to take a little bit more time to get people back into that routine that they used to be in. Like, just like you said, you're, you're now used to kind of, you know, I don't want to commute, you know? And so some of it's going to be on the companies to say, you know, we'll, We'll be flexible with you, but we want you to come back. Yeah. Yeah, I, I do think it'll swing back. I mean, just being at ICSC was, there was a good vibe there. 
Like for a decade yeah. going there, it was kind of, you know, there's some sadness to it. You're like, oh, <laughs> retail's getting beat up. And now retail's feeling pretty good about themselves. You know, they're <laughs> standing right. straight. And, um, you know, and obviously industrial has had a great run the past couple of years. So, you know, are, are you seeing it? Is there anybody out there? You mentioned there's buyers who are looking like there are many people who regret not buying retail five, 10 years ago because yeah. of how how it's gone in recent uh, year or so. Like, do you, are there anybody out there who's like, oh, some opportunity. Whenever there's a zig, you got a zag. Like, whatever people are going this way, that means you should actually go the other way and pick, pick up the opportunity. Yeah, I'm seeing a lot more people starting um, funds to, to buy distressed assets. I'm starting to see family offices hiring people specifically with real estate experience, seeing an opportunity to get into the game, especially because they typically are cash buyers and long-term holders. So that's an interesting opportunity for, for high net worth. I absolutely think that, you know, there's a number of people out there that have that contrarian viewpoint, just like Sam did in the nineties. He was the grave dancer. Like that was his, his theory is buy when there's distress. And that's typically the people that get in early are people that generally make the highest returns. I tell buyers all the time, look, you can't try to catch the falling knife. It could be worse. I'm not saying it can't get worse, but you're better off buying today because you can be that building that differentiates yourself because there's a lot of owners today that don't have the capital to, to do deals, to do TI, to fund commissions. Tenant rep brokers are grilling landlords on their balance sheets. Can you fund these deals? Are you going to be around? Who's your lender? When does your loan come due? So if you can buy a building today at a low basis, have cash to do these deals and differentiate yourself in the market, be the one that creates the spec suites, puts the amenities in. You have such a huge advantage to try to win that market share. If you wait too long, you don't know what's going to happen. Yeah. You know, usually just like stocks, if you buy it, you try to buy it on the up, it's already, you've already missed it. Um, right. Yeah. And we're, we're seeing that you, you can, Tell me uh, your thoughts on this, but you know, in the West Loop, there is there is demand for office. There's new buildings. Uh, there's plenty of companies that want to be in the West Loop. Um, so it does seem like, even though office on the whole has had challenges, like there are pockets and areas that are doing well. Full market, it's its own world. I mean, it's doing very well. Um, West Loop is better than the other submarkets downtown it's that that will recover first certainly before central loop and east loop but real estate to me you, a lot of people try to paint it with a very broad brush and they'll make very broad statements about a submarket or a, a location and and they it's very black and white and they, and they read these stats and they, and they don't dig deeper. Remember location, location, location. I mean, that, that is much true today as it, it, it ever has been. Um, you have to look at each building individually and how it performs against its competition 
and how it's historically performed and how it's done during other downturns. And I think you have to be selective if you want to make money. You, you have to look past some of the headlines and some of the reports that you read and really dig in and understand the market building by building. Totally agree. You know, I really appreciate all your time today. And um, do you have any other final thoughts or outlooks or um, anything else that you want to add to this? I, I love, we've gotten so many great nuggets from you. Great, for, We got wall of maturity. We got the great basis reset and good news money. All three of these are like golden nuggets that I can use on a daily basis to talk to people. Like, well, that's good news money. Um, you know, so I, I love those little cat, like Peter Kelly and the beds and sheds that you said that you mentioned. Yeah, that was great. I love that. Yeah, real estate people love their jargon. Uh, yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, the only other thing I would add is that we're, we're finally starting to see some buildings trade. And I think that's been the biggest challenge for us is that it's been very hard to point to actual sale comps and say, this is the market, this is where things have been. We just don't have that volume of sales. Uh, and I think finally we're, we're starting to see that happen. I know we're taking a lot of our deals to the auction platforms, sort of surety of close. That's what some of our clients like to see. And it's, it's creating the market. It's saying, okay, this is, this is the benchmark. This is where we are. And then you can say, well, my building's a little better or a little worse, whatever the case may be. But at least now we're going to ha start having some price discovery and some points, in fact, where we can say, okay, this happened and this is where we think it's going to go from here. So I do think, you know, the next to this year, next year, I, I think you're going to see a lot more movement than you have in the last couple of years. Awesome. Well, Alyssa, thank you very much for your, your time and expertise. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. It was great. This publication is intended for general information purposes only and does not and is not intended to constitute legal advice. The listener should consult with legal counsel to determine how laws or decisions discussed herein apply to the listener's specific circumstances. 